this session, and if you, people who are listening on the podcast on this, um, on lhm.org, so it's lhm.org slash we the people. This is called, this is one of those, this will take me like three weeks to get through. And it's because it's so controversial. Is America a Christian nation? That's, and that's their title, not mine. Okay. A Christian nation. Really? And I think you'll agree once you watch this video that the answers, and I've got some other things to show you, is some people will say, oh, absolutely not. They're a bunch of deists, right? Then you'll say some people that say, oh, absolutely. They're Bible-believing Christians and the Constitution is an inspired document. What if they're both wrong? <laughs> And I'm going to take the position they're both wrong. That we're not just a bunch of deists and they weren't expecting a secular atheistic society, but by the same token, they weren't expecting the Congress to preach the gospel either, right? You know what I'm saying? It was kind of like, it was kind of in the middle there. Right, and yeah, and it's doctrine of two kingdoms. And the idea is Christian-esque or maybe Judeo-Christian influence, but also influence from the Enlightenment and Greco-Roman you know, government. And so there's a lot of different factors here. And so they take a certain thing, because if you read the, you know, in, we say in God we trust on our money, right? Or we say the Star Spangled Banner, the fourth verse, that's what you see right there, right? Um, you'll, they'll, they'll quote this in, in a second, but the fourth verse says, you know, in God be our trust. And you have uh, people like John Adams and John James Madison talking about how we need a religious and moral people to maintain the republic. But then you also get things like Thomas Jefferson saying there is that wall of separation. Or you get quite quotes like, uh, in no way was the United States founded as a Christian nation, which is in a treaty from 1797. But on the other hand, then you get other statements. So it's, it's, this is where it gets confusing. And so I want to kind of introduce this topic. Before I get too far, and this is for people on the podcast also, I have some resources. If you want to know the stuff that I kind of read, if you haven't subscribed to this or seen this, and I keep this in my high school for my kids, um, one of the if you're interested in politics or current events, if, if I could recommend a magazine, it would be World Magazine. I don't know if you've heard of this before. It's by Evangelical. It's Christian. It's general Christian. So it's not Baptist or Lutheran. Or, it's just Evangelical. I'd say they have, every once in a while, even a Roman Catholic will be interviewed in it and stuff like that. But it's broadly Christian worldview. It's called World Magazine. This is the most recent one. I think what's the date on this? Yeah, 215.20. So this is the one that just came out. And this cover is, of course, the rising evil of anti-Semitism, which is a problem. I mean, we've had some news in the U.S., but especially in Europe, this is becoming an issue again. And so, but there's a whole lot of issues in here. And they have a website, too. I'll pop this up here. I think I put it up. Yeah, Providing Clarity, World Magazine. And they have a whole lot of topics. Taking action is a problem over here. You know, some of it's just politics. A Christian hero in Hollywood. They have cartoons. I mean, it really is. If you think Newsweek in time, but with a Christian worldview, that's this. And it's pretty unique. I haven't found anything quite like this. So if you haven't seen World Magazine, Grace, you act like you've kind of seen this before. Um, this is, I recommend this. Um, if you're really interested in kind of how to think politically without compromising, you know, or without mixing the kingdoms, I think they do a really good job. Um, again, not, I don't agree with every single thing they do, but it's a really good magazine. So World Magazine, I recommend. Um, another thing that I recommend, if you haven't seen this yet, uh, is this place called First Things. I don't know if you've heard of this before, First Things. This is a broadly Christian and, and ecumenical in a good sense. What I mean is they're not just saying we don't have any differences. That's ecumenical in a bad sense where it's, we just all get along. If the ecumenical movement, like the World Council of Churches, 70s and 80s, where it's like, well, we don't agree on everything, but peace and love and kumbaya, you know, that sort of thing. Good ecumenicism is we agree, but here's, we disagree and we can't worship on Sundays right now. But what can we agree on? Right, that sort of thing. That's kind of this approach in this magazine. And so this is interesting. So this is all uh, the woman taking on pornography, for example. There's stuff on abortion, Pope Francis, heaven and history. I mean, there's secular monks. I mean, it goes on and on. And it's, 
it's not necessarily like it doesn't really advocate for a political party or anything like that but it's a good thinking magazine you get what i'm saying in terms of just thinking of culture and thinking of worldview and you'll see debates between the people that are scholars here one of the editors for first things is roman catholic and i brought this book in it's by rr reno this is return of the strong gods he has another one called in defense of a christian society he's in his early 60s i believe he's a roman catholic and he's one of the editors of first things R.R. Reno is probably one of the best thinkers of basically saying we don't have to just give up on the culture. It's really tempting as Christians to kind of just say we're going to kind of build our little castles, right, and that sort of thing. What he does is, you know, if we want to advocate for the people that um, are non-Christians but that are still, say, progressive or caring or whatever, we want to help the poor. We want to do things. What he does in some of his books is argues that um, the the elite, the ruling class that's of those who are advocating Things like um, marriage can be whatever you want it to be, or gender can be whatever you want it to be, or no-fault divorce. and all, I mean, you've got a whole list of things, right? He has this whole list of stuff. The people advocating for that stuff don't um, really feel the impact from it. The people that feel the impact from it are the poor, right? That sort of thing. It's the people that are in what he calls Fishtown. It's a place in, it's like a, like a blue-collar area in Philadelphia. And he has some really interesting talks that basically say, when you're in your gated community and you're advocating for some of these policies, you don't ever see the results. Right, you don't ever. You, you're 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 rich. Most of them are in yeah. stable marriages. Right, you don't ever see Insulated. the result. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the people you do see, the people you that do feel the results, are in these poor urban communities, whether they're African American or the white working class or whatever. They're the ones that actually feel the punishment of these sort of things with you know out of wedlock births and so on and so forth. Right. So he focuses on this as you know in a Christian society. We can actually, by advocating for things like marriage, we actually are caring for the poor. You know, we're not going to cede that ground to secular society and stuff like that. So it's fascinating. And, and then this one, Return the Strong Gods, what this one's about is how after World War II, and this, is, this would be a whole session, so I'm just going to just kind of, I'm just going to give a plug. Um, and it's a little heady. I'll, I'll admit it's a little bit of a heady read. After World War II, there was this kind of intellectual consensus in what we call Western Civ. So Europe, Americas, Australia, that sort of thing, right? The idea was is we need a maximum open society. Because after World War II, with Nazism and fascism and, you know, all these different things, we don't want that stuff to happen again. The, the, the idea was never again, right? And so it was the pendulum swing was like, this kind of maximum where the state is God, right? Now we swung it the other way, where because people went to that extreme, we want to do everything we can to avoid it, and so we're going to get rid of any attachments whatsoever. So family, nation, culture, if you're proud of those things, we got to get rid of that pride because that leads to totalitarian Nazism, right? You get the idea. And so now we've abandoned that. And so now what we're doing is things like we need maximum openness in all areas. We want multiculturalism. We want openness in sexuality. We want openness in uh, markets. We want openness. Everything must be maximally open because then we can avoid this. Does, does that make sense? Sure. And so that's the logic. And so what he's saying is, is that experiment has failed. The reason people are attracted to fringe things, the reason people are attracted and have the sense of, especially young males under 29, like 18 to 29, the reason they have such a trouble is they have nothing to fight for or nothing to work for. Right? right? I mean, cause, so in other words, if you don't have an identity, you don't have, you know, you don't have love of country or you don't have love of your family or you don't have, I mean, all the things that used to be kind of what made you, we called those, and so he uses those and calls them strong gods in, the, in a kind of, uh, 
non-religious sense, right? It's the things that you attach yourself to. And so it says, the name of the book, Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West. And he talks through that and how maybe a return of some of this is not all bad. But there's that kind of ruling class that says, no, 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 that's going to lead you to fascism or that's going to make you a totalitarian. And you see that in our political discourse now. Right? If you make a decision that seems like you're saying one side's better than the other, or you make a decision that sounds like there's a right and a wrong, oh, you're being a fascist. That's, that's where that comes from, is that, that you want maximum openness, especially your morality. So that's R.R. Reno, Return of the Strong Gods. Um, first thing's another one. Another one, if you don't know about it, this is, if, again, this is Breakpoint, if you don't know Breakpoint. Uh, when I've shown the videos in the past... Um, of what would you say? Remember that? I showed two of those. Grace, you've been here for a couple of those. Um, they do a really, really good job, too. They have podcasts. They have a really good podcast, actually. That's like the Week in Review. That's what this one is here. And so Chinese Christians running towards the coronavirus. That's a, it's a fascinating story where, like, everybody's trying to, you know, button down the hatches and not even go to the city. And the Christians are actually going to it and trying to minister to these people that are scared or sick. It's fascinating. The Chinese church, and I've said it before, the Chinese church by 2030 may be the majority of China's population. They actually may be majority Christian. That will change that culture. It already has, but the communist authorities actually are scared. They're trying to, the last couple of years, they're really starting to freak out because the Christian church has expanded so much that it actually undermines, not intentionally, they don't try to take on the state at all. But because their worldview is so incompatible with that kind of state, secular um, communism, they're running scared. I mean, so they're shutting down churches and arresting pastors. They're also persecuting Muslims in the far west. I don't know if you've heard about this. The Urgas people, there are about a million of them in the very fringes of the far west of China. When you think of China, you never think of this area geographically. But they're a Turkic uh, group that are kind of like nomadic Muslims. They're like, they, there are basically a million of them. They're like right now in re-education camps from the Chinese communist government in the far west. I mean, they're really, really getting paranoid because you've got the Christian movement, and then you've got groups like the Muslims in the West. You've got the separatist uh, Buddhists like the Dalai Lama and those groups in the South. And so the Chinese communists are a little, they're getting a little little, little paranoid. And so it might get really bad. Unfortunately, it might get really bad yeah, for a while. Meantime, yeah. Right, it could. But the idea is, is if demographic trends continue, 2030, China might actually be majority Christian, which, like I said, that will completely change that culture. Yeah. Um, and that's actually, Pastor Dinger has, will say this too, you've got to remind yourself sometimes. You know, in the West, we see kind of like this post-Christian society and all these other different things going on, although there are glimmers. You know, there are moments when you're like, wait a minute, things are reversing a little bit. But globally, the church is doing pretty well. You go to places like Ethiopia, where they're like the church of Meneke Jesus, it's a Lutheran church, is adding 10,000 members a month. Wow. <laughs> I mean, they're baptizing like crazy. They don't even have enough pastors. They're asking us to help train their pastors because they don't have enough. I mean, if that gives, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, that's, it's fascinating. You know, Pastor Dinger's like, now we should ask them what they're doing, you know, to <laughs> yeah. not get arrogant and say, well, we got all the great oh, training. So, yeah. So that's, that's, and that's a good comment. But anyways, here, here's some different things. This is, again, broadly evangelical. This is Breakpoint. You can kind of see different articles. And, I, again, you don't agree with everything, but if you want to think in a Christian worldview, they do really good work. So if you haven't uh, paid attention to Breakpoint, it's the late Chuck Colson's um, organization. So Prison Fellowship Ministries, Angel Tree. This is like a subset of Prison Fellowship that's kind of its own thing now, and it's all about current events and also just thinking about cultural issues from a Christian worldview. So if I, if I say things, those are basically the three things I go to as resources. I go to world, I go to first things, and then I go to breakpoint, you know, and I think between the three, I usually get a pretty good idea what's going on. I mean, I have other things that are more partisan and stuff, but I don't really advocate for that stuff. 
All right, so anyways, just want to advocate for those things. I have this up here if you want to kind of glance through it later if you want. But I want to kind of start, I'm going to show you 20 minutes. I want to do this thing. And I'm just curious to see, because we can just kind of put the video up. So, that, so people listening, this is lhm.org. And if you go, this is the second video if you want to actually see the visuals on this, because you're only going to get the audio. I tried blowing it up, but then it froze. It's something about the resolution. It does this on my Promethean too. I'll like it, if I use the YouTube app, it works. Mm -hmm. But if I try to blow up a video in a browser, if, have you ever had this issue? Mm -hmm. I don't know what the. It's a Promethean complaint that I have for them. Like if there was an update, it would be a resolution. And I'm not sure if it's on their end or if it's because of the screens, mm -hmm. but something's not. Anyways, enough geeking out on that. It just drives me crazy sometimes. It's like, sorry guys, I have to do this thing because you know what I mean. But anyways, we're in a small room. Here we go. How we define a Christian nation is always bewildering to me. Uh, Christian meaning we're living according to Christ's precepts? No, and we never have been. Um, Christian as in there are many Christians who live here? Okay, I'll grant you that. Um, so far as whether we're founded on Christian principles, I would argue categorically we're not. Um, there are clearly influential Christians who were involved in the founding of this country, and there were clearly um, Christians who were coming here for the sake of their ability to worship freely and who made attempts to function in a Christian way in this nation. Pilgrims come to mind with the Mayflower Compact and others like that. But when it got down to actually doing the nation building with the um, work of the Founding Fathers, Madison and Jefferson and Franklin, these guys were driven much more by the principles of the Enlightenment than by Christian principles. Now the thing that gets confusing for many people, especially Christians today who want to make that argument that we are a Christian nation founded on Christian principles, is that there's a lot of overlap. Because the Enlightenment at the time of the uh, revolution and the founding of this country in the late 18th century, at that time, the Enlightenment was still compatible with a lot of Christian truth. There's a God. He holds us accountable. There is law. There is natural law. They agreed with all those things, and Christians agree with those things. But the idea that that makes them Christian is, is really wrong-headed. And that's borne out when you read Jefferson's own personal stuff where he just rejects Christ as Redeemer and rejects the idea of the, the gospel resurrection. No, that's all gone. He's basically interested in moral people who are accountable to this judge and that's all they, he has. Welcome back to We the People, Citizens of Two Kingdoms. Have you ever heard anyone say that America is a Christian country because we have, in God we trust, on our money? A lot of people believe that. Actually, it was not until the Civil War that those words were first struck on a two-cent coin in 1864 because of increased religious sentiment. And it wasn't until 1883 that it was on all currency. Even more, the phrase did not become the motto of the United States until an act of Congress made it the national motto in 1956. But that phrase predates the Civil War. 
I'm pretty sure that most of us could sing the first line of the Star Spangled Banner from memory. Oh, say can you see by the dawn? It's our national anthem. During the War of 1812, as the morning light revealed that the battle-torn American flag still flew above Fort McHenry, Francis Scott Key wrote his poem, The Defense of Fort McHenry. It would later become known as the Star-Spangled Banner. In the fourth verse, which I have never heard anyone sing, it says, Then conquer we must, when our cause it is just. And this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. In the Pledge of Allegiance, the phrase, one nation under God, did not become part of the pledge until 1954 after President Eisenhower heard a sermon by Reverend George Dougherty based on the Gettysburg Address. The sermon was titled, A New Birth of Freedom. The president was sitting in the pew that Abraham Lincoln used when he attended the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. The pastor argued that the nation's might lay not in arms, but in its spirit and higher purpose. He noted that the Pledge's sentiments could be those of any nation, that there was something missing in the Pledge, and that which was missing was a characteristic and definitive factor in the American way of life. He cited Lincoln's words, under God, as defining words that set the United States apart from other nations. The next day, Congressman Charles Oakman, at the urging of Eisenhower, no doubt, introduced a bill in the House to include those words, and the new pledge was adopted on June 14, 1954. Today we celebrate that day as Flag Day. Does that make America a Christian nation? Nope. In fact, in 1797, there was a treaty called the Treaty of Tripoli. It was passed by a unanimous vote. In Article 11 of that treaty was this statement, the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. So while America was not officially founded on Christianity, the use of the word God might make it a religious one. But what God do we put our trust in? The value of having in God we trust in the money, though, I think, is the sense of accountability that that builds into us as a people, that there is a God who holds us accountable. And from my perspective, when you're talking about the left-hand realm, that's sufficient. I want people to know that there's a God who's going to hold them accountable and His laws matter, and that's good. But that's not the same as the Christian God at all. In the Declaration of Independence, it mentioned nature's God. That could include anything from a tree to a buffalo to whatever power greater than ourselves might be out there. This is called deism. Many of our nation's founders were confessed deists. Deism is the belief that the universe had a creator. 
but that he does not concern himself with the daily lives of humans. And he does not directly communicate with humans, either by revelation or by sacred books. They often spoke about God, nature's God, or the God of nature, but this was not the God of the Bible. Deism, in my mind, represents um, that spot where a man is becoming increasingly confident and essentially living out the Genesis 3 temptation. I'm my own God. We will make it our own way. We'll, we'll, we'll pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and off we go, which sounds eerily like the American ideal. Um, for running a country and building a nation, it's pretty good stuff. But as a Christian, not at all. Not at all. The use of the word God in our national motto, in the Pledge of Allegiance and the Declaration of Independence, and wherever else it might appear, is officially called ceremonial deism. Since 1963, the Supreme Court has used a concept called ceremonial deism to decide certain cases involving the use of this word. Technically, it is related to the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. What the court has said is that if a practice is customary, even if it has religious origins, then it may be beyond the reach of the Establishment Clause. In other words, the use of the word God does not establish a religion. Through this concept of ceremonial deism, the court has ruled that its use is protected from Establishment Clause scrutiny chiefly because they, that is the instances of the word God, have lost through rote repetition any significant religious content. In the first session I asked the question, what role did Martin Luther play in the establishment of one of the most important freedoms we enjoy in America? It was the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights, specifically the Establishment Clause and the Freedom Clause. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. James Madison has been called the father of the Constitution and the author of the Bill of Rights. In a letter he wrote to Reverend Schaefer in 1821, Madison credits Luther with his doctrine of the two kingdoms for the American handling of church and state. Reverend Sir, it illustrates the excellence of a system which by a due distinction to which the genius and courage of Luther led the way, between what is due to Caesar and what is due to God, best promotes the discharge of both obligations. And what was it about Luther's genius and courage? It has to do with Luther's doctrine of two kingdoms, the civil and the spiritual. Luther taught, God has ordained the two governments, the spiritual, which by the Holy Spirit under Christ makes Christians and pious people, and the secular, which restrains the unchristian and wicked so that they are obliged to keep the peace outwardly. Therefore, where temporal power presumes to prescribe laws for the soul, it encroaches upon God's government and only misleads and destroys souls. In the 13th chapter of Romans, Paul wrote, 
everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Whether the justices who sit on the Supreme Court realize it or not, they are there because God has established the government. Whether the senators and congressmen across the street in the Capitol building realize it or not, they are there because God has established government. Whether the President of the United States believes it or not, he is there because God established government. And why? For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Paul also says, Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Romans 13 is a demanding text and a really hard text. It's always helpful to remember that when Paul wrote the text of Romans 13, the immediate context was the Roman Empire. And we're not just talking about some of the beneficent emperors. Most likely Paul was writing this when Nero was running the show. And Nero was no friend of the Christians. Um, Nero was not a friend of too many people. So Paul was able to say about government that it is God's government and God uses it for his purposes, even about a corrupt emperor like Nero. So when we find ourselves in situations that are disagreeable and even wrong, we have to be very careful before we quickly rise up to say, well, this government is illegitimate, needs to be pushed out. Because you can make the case that Nero was an illegitimate ruler, but Paul wasn't ready to um, um, foment rebellion. Um, Luther himself exemplifies this. The leaders are God's leaders. Uh, even if they're less than desirable, even if they're not Christian, even if they're persecuting the church, they're still God's leaders. Why God allows them to exist, I don't know. And that's where we have to sometimes plead don't understand it, but my responsibility is to speak against what is wrong, to fight against what is un unjust, and yet to still be faithful to God. Luther fully supported obeying the civil authorities. He also fully supported disobeying them when they extended their authority into the spiritual kingdom. Listen to what he said. We are to be subject to governmental power and do what it bids as long as it does not bind our conscience, but legislates only concerning outward matters. But if it invades the spiritual domain and constrains the conscience, over which God only must preside and rule, we should not obey it at all, but rather lose our necks. Now we live in a democratic republic where, for the most part, the civil kingdom has not encroached on the beliefs of the spiritual kingdom. But throughout history, there have been totalitarian governments, dictators, and persecutors of the faithful. What shall the Christian do then? Hear the church, and someday that might mean you and me, must refuse obedience, even if it means martyrdom. And what does this mean? What are your guys' thoughts on that video? Pretty interesting? Great. I think he does a good job. He's, he's actually retiring as president of the seminary. He's still the president right now, Dale Mary, of our, of our St. Louis Seminary. Um, he's retiring right now. 
Um, so we'll get a new. And actually, the other guy that's up there, Joel Bierman, the guy that's a professor, he's he's on. He's one of the potential candidates to become the new president. Oh, really? So yeah. So the two guys you see there, in from a synodical standpoint, for pastors, anyways, they're people that everybody knows. So you should. Those guys are big in our Senate. But anyways, I think they do a pretty good job. Now, a couple of things that I would like to clarify, and this is where if I was talking to uh, Dr. Bierman, Professor Bierman, there, um, is. The Enlightenment, he mentions the Enlightenment as being kind of one of the big sources for this. There are different forms of the Enlightenment. So here's what I mean. There is the really super, super secular, um, atheistic Enlightenment, or maybe deistic, with people like Voltaire in, in France, right? Just really, really out there. Very radical Enlightenment, okay? Where he makes fa famous comments. I'm going to paraphrase this. It's something like, I will not be satisfied until every king is hanged in the entrails of every priest. You know, that kind of just really radical, and you see it in the French Revolution, right? Off with their heads, the guillotine, you end up with Robespierre, and then eventually Napoleon, right? I mean, you see the results of the French Revolution. The, the Enlightenment that took hold in the United States was more the English-Scottish Enlightenment, which was more compatible with the Christian worldview. It was more of a common sense Enlightenment. That's why Americans, I mean, so America's founding ideals are much more pragmatic, if that makes sense. How can we just make this work? And Americans have always been that way, Right. Just show me where it works. What's the most efficient? What's the most right? That's kind of our, and best, yeah. yeah, that's the, yeah. And so we're very economic and we're very, actually Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations, is a Scottish common sense philosopher that the founding fathers would have known about free markets, you know, and stuff like that. So the American founding fathers were much more English-Scottish enlightenment instead of like, say, French-German enlightenment. And that makes a huge difference in their approach, which is why he said, that's why some Christians get confused, because they are so compatible initially, right? In the first 17, 1800s, they're saying a lot of the same stuff about natural law, that we're accountable before God. I mean, there's a lot of com common ground. And so you're like, well, that must mean they're Christians. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, that's where, and so you can see where you get that. However, as a contrary, and I don't have time to show you this, if you want to, we're not going to watch all this in class. There's an alternative view from a guy named Mark David Hall, I think I have all your email addresses. I might just send this out. It's called, Did America Have a Christian Founding? He just wrote a book that just came out with this exact same title. It's uh, 2019. He's a professor at George Fox, so he's got a Quaker background, of all things. Um, although he wasn't always there. He was at other places, too, like Colgate University, I think, or somewhere else. Anyways, Did America Have a Christian Founding? I'll just read the abstract. This disputed question, far from being of only historical interest, has important implications for how we conceive the role of the religion in the American Republic. Mark David Hall begins by considering two popular answers to the query. Of course not, and absolutely. <laughs> They're both wrong. You see what I mean? That's the problem, is we got two people, we got this binary choice, and both of those are wrong. Now, we, in logic, we call that a false dichotomy, right? Or the false choice. It's like, well, you have to choose this one or this one. No, you don't. <laughs> There's other options, right? That's a, that's a logical problem. It's a debate tactic. Um, both of which distort the founders' views. After showing that Christian ideas were one of the important intellectual influences on the founders, he discusses three major areas of agreement with respect to religious liberty and church-state relations at the time of the founding. Religious liberty is a right and must be protected. The national government should not create an established church, and states should have them only if they encourage and assist Christianity, and religion belongs in the public square. In short, while America did not have a Christian founding in the sense of creating a theocracy, its founding was deeply shaped by Christian moral truths. More important, it created a regime that was hospitable to Christians, but also to practitioners of other religions. I think that's, I think that's very fair. Um, and I think he does a really good job with this. So this is by, again, I'll, I'll put this beginning. Um, Heritage has this, but he's got, you can actually YouTube. He has a whole thing that he just did. He spoke 
um, at a conference, and if you just Google, did America have a Christian founding? It's about 50 minutes long. He goes through all this and actually explains, and he goes through. We might watch part of it in, cl in this class later, but I'm just letting you know. So Mark David Hall, and again, the, the newest book came out like five months ago. Like it's that recent in terms of his scholarship. It's very much scholarship, but he does a really good job. Both of those, the false dichotomy is wrong. Christian influence, yes. And here's the thing, did you, and I tell people this all the time, when the United States was formed, even though there was no Church of the United States, like the Church of England, right? We have no established religion. The government of Tennessee, for example, had an official religion. And that was not considered a problem. It wasn't until after the 14th Amendment, during World War, uh, after the Civil War, sorry, after the Civil War, where a lot of the Bill of Rights things had to apply to the states also. And it had to do with slavery and voting rights and stuff like that. And so um, that whole idea that we're going to take the National Bill of Rights and put it on the states is actually not originally what happened. So many states actually had official religions. And so it's kind of a fascinating discussion that way. So anyways, did America have a Christian founding? I will, again, I'll probably show you a clip from his, his uh, speaking on that. But it's a fascinating one. And I'll send out some links and stuff. So, Ross, I'll send you guys a link, too. I'm going to send out an email to people that I know are in this class for those who missed. Um, I'm assuming you were in that discussion with Pastor, which was, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I mean, <laughs> we're all we're all chuckling because we we know what that probably was like. Um, <laughs> for and love the man, of course. It's just it's it is what that is. Uh, so, anyways, um, yeah, I I commend this to you. If you want to kind of read this ahead of time, um, you can kind of just search that well, with Hall. Um, did America have a Christian founding? And with that and the LHM in combination, I think that gives you a pretty good view on what's going on here of there's not a false dichotomy. Christian influence, yes. There's a certain deistic element to it. And then there's a book out, and I showed it to you a couple weeks ago, but um, I'm going to bring that back in later called The Anonymous God. And so when we say, like, for example, when somebody gets out and says, God bless America, what God are we talking about? You know, that's an interesting discussion because if you think about it, the Mormon, the Jehovah's Witness, the Muslim, the Hindu who believes in Brahman, the Christian can all say, yep, I agree with that. Right? I mean, so that, so then and that I'm, makes... And I've talked to people who said, uh, I believe in God, so I must be a Christian. Right. <laughs> right. Think, well, let's go down deeper here. <laughs> right. Well, hence, like I said, there are people that actually will around and say, well, it says in God we trust in our money, so that must mean we're a Christian nation. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's the whole, uh, the whole phrase my dad always said, you know, the whole, uh, just because you stand in a garage doesn't make you a car. <laughs> And that's kind of, you know, there's a lot of truth in that in terms of just because you claim something doesn't mean it's so. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's some, I like that quote, just because you stand in a garage does not make you a car. <laughs> and so just because you claim to be something doesn't mean you actually act like it and actually are that thing. And so, you know, does reality correspond to what you're saying? It's, it's kind of interesting on that point. So anyways, I know it's past. Anybody have questions, comments, anything like that? Yeah, I'll send this stuff out. I'll send it to Jim Warbeck, who's in here, and um, Terry's been in here before, and then Basil's have been in here. It's kind of kind of hit and miss and kind of rotating through people through. But I'll send this stuff out, and we'll go from there. Hey, everyone. Just a reminder that we are a little over a week away from our Lenten season, beginning with Ash Wednesday on February 26th. Worship is at 7 p.m. with Holy Communion and the Institution of Ashes. The following Wednesdays, we will be meeting at 6.15 in our elementary gym for soup supper and worship will begin at 7 p.m. including hold an evening prayer every Wednesday again until uh, Palm Sunday and then the week of Holy Week uh, we'll be having our Seder meal and Good Friday services as well as Easter.